0: Hi, John.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: Good. Back at it again.
1: Yeah, we're, we're trying to do this weekly. This We're either going to crack or we're going to get in the habit of doing it. So.
0: Yeah, it's been pretty eye-opening to see what goes into a podcast. I knew for a long time that there was much more than it seemed, but now doing it every week, it's kind of really illuminating how much work it really is.
1: Yeah, we're super grateful that pe- uh, some people are checking it out. You always, when you don't get uh, feedback for a day or two, I'm always wondering, you know, oh, maybe we've completely bombed. But we're, we're very grateful for the folks who have given us feedback on Twitter and other things. Because, um, but, but you can even be more critical too. <laughs> like, if, if you think it's boring, don't don't be worried about hurting our feelings. Just um, just let us know.
0: You know, I totally agree because if you look at why we're doing this, we're not doing this for the fame or the money. <laughs> you know, it. So many people have asked John and I. You know, these questions. And it often feels like when the questions repeat, when the themes repeat, that there needs to be, you know, some people talking about, you know, not the actual design process or how to set up a sprint, but the actual relationships and feelings people have around things. And so I almost like, I would say I reluctantly started this just because I felt like it was more effective than just having these conversations over and over again. And I thought it could be helpful
1: which brings us kind of the top we we kind of made a little little mental list of these topics and one just kind of keeps coming up to the top which is around prioritization and mm-hmm. we we've heard that question from designers often that they are interested in understanding the art and the craft and the science of prioritization because th- they often feel like they're at the whim and, and mercy of prioritization, and so they, they want to learn more about it, or advocate, or get involved, or in some cases just not get involved, and and know that it's working, and that's one that's risen to the top, and uh, uh, in our list. And I I don't know what do you, what comes to mind as a designer, just gut checking when when you think of prioritization.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot. Um, And, you know, like you said, I I tweeted about this just last week, and I myself was surprised how many people kind of really related to it. You know, the way I tweeted it is, how can designers work better with PMs Well, they can learn how to understand how a PM thinks about prioritization? And the reason I worded it like that is, you know, to your question, the first thing that comes to my mind is prioritization is really how the PM thinks, about the world. In, in a lot of ways, it's like a systemized worldview around the product for a given PM or, or rather should be. And so if a designer is ever trying to understand you know, how to work with the PM, ultimately they need to understand how that PM is going to be making decisions and how they provide that value to the team. And so I said it from that perspective because that's absolutely the first thing that comes to mind. How are PMs making their decisions and how can they communicate that uh, to, to others
1: and and when aren't they thinking about it at all <laughs> right mm-hmm. like, i think that, yeah. that that is what i hear from designers often is that they're a little hesitant to call someone out on it but their gut is saying i don't know what they're doing <laughs> right like i don't think we're working on the most valuable thing but they're hesitant because some of these methods of prioritization actually look sort of pseudoscientific right or they, they look like they're really really rigorous or they see this big spreadsheet or you know they hear someone trying to explain this whole framework for doing it and obviously designers are able to understand that but but on first blush it might might look like there's more to it and then you feel a little hesitant and so what, the problem with that of course is it simmers and people get kind of grumpy. <laughs> About what they're doing. And and they don't know how to interface with the product manager to have a real discussion about it. And I think that that's a problem.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, you've spoken in the past about this idea of a working agreement. And I think, at, you know, at some orgs, it's very explicit how PMs have to make decisions, right? They include that in the charter documents or in the one pagers or in the specifications, or maybe even it's defined at a high level by the leadership. But in a lot of orgs, you need to just ask. You need to establish that working relationship so that when you are confused as a designer, you can ask, hey, rather than, I don't know, we should do this, or, hey, I don't think this is the highest priority thing. You know, coming with an open mind and saying, well, you know, I'd like to learn more about how you made the decision and really understand how you compare this as a priority to other things. How do you balance it all? Because I'm trying to, you know, resonate or understand you on that level. You know, and so to me, it it starts at the working agreement that can we share a common language with one another on how we're making decisions?
1: One experiment I do that gets to this prioritization thing is that I will ask I call it the random Jira ticket game. And I I sort of ask someone to kind of whatever you could have cards on the wall, I don't really care, but if whatever thing represents some small unit of work. And I asked that team, you know, can you go from that to the one to three year bets of the company in more than four steps? Not, not just two steps, because it's like, oh, because I heard that's important and that's why I'm, you know, making the button radius three pixels or something. That, that's kind of too easy. Can you go in more than four steps and can you get to that thing? And the reason this has something to do with prioritization is that a lot of product managers practice that kind of gymnastics that kind of language but other people don't and you you'll hear this product manager saying all these things and they go to meetings and say all this stuff and you wonder like what are those bets I haven't even heard about that and then you you, you don't have any way to interface in that discussion so you know a realistic you know one way to tease out, before you even talk about prioritization do you have a shared language is if members of the team can do that in any sort of consistent way one other tip that i've learned recently is that when we talk about shared language it doesn't mean about it doesn't mean agreeing on everything so let's say that you and i share a bunch of words together some of those words are things that we probably want to agree on what they mean or get kind of close you know, like you, you and I should probably figure out what product analytics means or something, right? There's also a group of things where we agree that we might have multiple different interpretations, but that makes us a lot stronger. But it's I I I should know your perspective on it, and you should know my perspective. And the third group are things that actually the very act of trying to find shared understanding takes away the serendipity and the, the beauty of diversity. So us sitting in a room trying to figure out our Google Docs so that I understand what you mean and you understand what I mean we should just agree to not even want to know and and the the, the good things are going to happen. So anyway, to come back to prioritization, before you can even start unwinding the model or people are using, you need to ask yourself what what shared language is really important and I don't know, those are two little tips you can do to start picking away at this question. I don't know, Tarek, what does it feel like to be on a team where you have no idea how your work fits into the big picture?
0: Oh, it's awful. It's a nightmare. Um, And it's a nightmare in, in, in almost all ways, right? Like if you're doing good work and people are choosing, let's say, your direction or your opinion on things, you might not know why because you don't know why that gets prioritized. And so if that stops happening, right? If, if people stop seeing kind of the vision the way you see it or your priority, then you don't know how to communicate. And so you're you're nervous from that perspective. And if, you know, if it's the other situation where, you know, you think the focus should be somewhere else and we need to work on this first and, you know, the team's not going with your side of things, that's also crippling, right? And so when you don't know how things are prioritized, it's kind of like just stabbing in the dark, Right. Um, you know, the things you've worked hard on, the things you th- you see, the patterns you're recognizing, um, all of it feels kind of worthless if as a team, you're not being intentional about the work you do.
1: So to contrast that, what does it feel like when you've worked with a product manager, or forget just the product manager, other people where you have figured out the language? Like, was there one... One thing that cracked it open, or did it take a lot of work? Like, how did you get to that point, and what did it feel like when you had it?
0: Sure. And so, there's never been a perfect situation for me. And I think that's what you should expect. You should expect some level of dysfunctionalness or some level of, you know, push and pull. In the situations I have seen it really work out. There's some shared language and some sort of participation, understanding and choosing what's the highest leveraged task or choosing you know what gets scoped down and what doesn't at both a systematic level and at an individual level. So at the systematic level, you know, there are many ways PMs do prioritizations. It might be a two by two or it might be some sort of a scorecard. Um, in the past, I've had people share their scorecard with me, right? And that makes them vulnerable to say, well, look, I'm not just choosing the top item, but this is how I think of each task in terms of urgency or importance. I've had situations where people have asked me to fill out uh, the same scorecard so we could compare and contrast, right? Um, So that's at like the systematic level. At the individual level, when you have that trust with that person, where you know they're not just doing something from their gut, when you know they're well-informing themselves, it's so much easier to then have productive conversations, because then I can go to that person and I can really talk about what information have they seen that maybe I haven't, and what have I seen that I can kind of make a case for that you know maybe they've seen it but they in, interpret it differently, but that comes from me knowing um, that they're well-meaning them you know me knowing that they appreciate me and and you know the value I bring, and so the ways I've seen prioritization on a team work really well is both. The systematic ways where things are transparent, and you know you can be an active participant, maybe not the decision maker, but then the other necessary part is just having that trust where you can go to people and just have uh, productive conversations. Is that is that what you're seeing as well, or am I kind of in a bubble here?
1: I'd say that one thing that stands out about your description there is you described like a couple different frameworks, you know, like scorecards and. Checklists and questions and, and a bunch of things. One thing I heard for sure is that you agreed that 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 part where someone asked you to take part and participate was so important. And when I see teams that are doing this right, they they've they've built a very high level of trust. One, but they've also figured out again to go back to this shared language. It doesn't matter whether it's a spreadsheet. Or whether it's a checklist or whether it's a two by two or it's a bunch of belief map, like a belief map on the wall, or it's a North Star framework or it's any of those things. What it means is that people can stand or sit in front of that and have a conversation and off, uh, offer perspectives on it. So the two things that struck me about what you said is one being invited into the quote unquote process. And then the other one was that this was a conversation back and forth between you and someone
0: else. Totally. Um, you have to feel involved and it has to feel uh, interactive. I think, you know, the orgs where a decision has been made and people are told after the fact that, hey, we're not focusing on this, we're focusing on that, you know, the dysfunction starts there, right? And then you, you get discussions about not just priority, but about decision making, um, about, you know, who gets to... Uh, contribute, et cetera. So so you mentioned a great point. A level of collaboration and involvement and participation is absolutely necessary to even have the chance to have a healthy discussion about prioritization, for sure. Um, With that being said, I think, you know, the method also does matter, right? Whether you have a scorecard or a two-by-two or, you know, all these different methods, I think how the method is communicated is as important as the method or things in the method. Mm. So, you know, if I use a scorecard and it's communicated that the highest score wins, right, people are going to argue about how to score things, right? If I use a two-by-two, right, and it's all about kind of, you know, how you measure a certain axis and how something falls into that, people are going to argue about those semantics, right? And so it really comes down to how you want to use each. Is something a sorting function for you or is something... Uh, you know, a deterministic model that, you know, outputs an answer. And so that's another necessary part. If it's a situation where your framework is always giving you the answers, um, (laughs) it's kind of like, you know, what's what's the point of your intellect, (laughs) right? The framework's supposed to be a way to organize your thoughts so you can make an educated decision, right? It's a way to communicate. It's not a model to just, you know, go with whatever ranks the highest. That's probably the third part. In addition to having a healthy environment and healthy working relationships, uh, just having very pragmatic frameworks.
1: I'm really zeroing in on the thing you said about if the thing gives you the answer you want all the time, <laughs> because
0: it's like a vending machine. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, well, there's there's a writer person in this industry called Don Ryerson, and he. He in in a book that he wrote about product development flow, he talks about kind of an exercise he does with teams where he asks them to estimate the opportunity cost for a set of items, if I'm understanding the exercise correctly. and, And to do it individually or to do it in groups and then compare. And the amazing thing is, I think in the book he said it's like 40x or 30x, like the when you do that activity the range from the smallest estimate to the largest estimate for some benefit to the company is 40x <laughs> and what i really love about that activity is it's the exact opposite of these environments where you know people have created this incredibly complicated spreadsheet and you put in all these inputs and then, and then you get this answer, and then someone's like, "I don't really like that answer, so I'm just going to change that number, <laughs> right?" But they do that without having a conversation, and I think that that's really the important part. The best approaches for prioritization, as well, they they respect the magnitude of differences in what you could be working on. So a lot of really simplistic things around, you know, high, medium, low value, or Uh, small, medium, large, extra large, or whatever. The irony there is the value is not distributed that way, right? There's things that you could be working on which are 50 times more valuable than the other thing. And in terms of the length of the project, like if you're working on the most valuable thing, it doesn't matter whether it takes one month or three months, you're working on the single most valuable thing. So I did an exercise with a team recently talking about kind of getting the conversation going. And I said, team, there are only three buckets for prioritization. And I'd like you to each do this individually. And then we're going to share our results. You have to put it in one of the three buckets and the three buckets, or let's say four, because there was a refuse pile. The, The four buckets were one, um, Kind of medium effort and medium to high value, meh. Okay, put just don't never do those. The other one was highest opportunity in experimentation friendly, meaning there was an opportunity to learn and it was the single most important thing you could be working on. The third one was guaranteed incredibly small and everyone just generally thinks, like, why not? That's pretty valuable. And the fourth one, Um, Oh yeah, that goes through the fourth one was the refuse pile. And we did an exercise where people put those things in those categories. Very, very interesting when you give them that exercise, because then we had a discussion about it. Oh, 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 sorry. The, The fourth one was guaranteed extremely valuable, but, but only completable as a huge batch of work with no incremental learning. So refuse pile, guaranteed small, valuable, uh, Uh, super valuable, uh, experimentation friendly, and extremely valuable, but not experimentation friendly. And the crazy thing was all these great conversations like, no, there's a way to learn more incrementally with that. No, there isn't. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's so valuable. It's going to take us 16 months. It's huge, but we just have to do it. Well, do we? Well, how about these small items? How about these like this string of 1,000 UX fixes in the UX fix backlog that all take one to two hours, we could finish all of those in a thousand hours if we just started working on them. And so, anyway, I'm sharing that as kind of a real-world example of an exercise where even just simplifying to those buckets can get you the right conversation. Because a lot of this wrangling and Tetris playing over, oh, I think this is going to take three weeks instead of two, or I think that that's just a little bit more valuable than those other things really doesn't make a difference. If you if you draw confidence intervals around that stuff, everything overlaps anyway for the most part. So that's something to think
0: about. I love that exercise because it forces people to have discussions. And kind of what I'm trying to get at is that's what any prioritization framework should do. It should allow you to have um, it should allow you to have productive conversations with some sort of structure to them. It shouldn't decide for you. And so, you know, the different categories you mentioned, I think, were spot on to get people to have kind of almost conflicting discussions or ones that required people to kind of really apply their intellect. Um, something else you mentioned about kind of the confidence intervals. I love that too, because when I was a junior designer, um, you know, I was coming off kind of being my own CEO uh, at a project, right? I thought I was obsessed about every detail, right? Every decision you think you need to make or be involved in. And and a part of that is because you think it makes a marginal difference, right? Um, once you kind of build products for some time, you realize that the order of things absolutely does matter. But in the long scheme of things, what's more important is just constantly learning than learning unless they have very specific order. Um, there might be some exceptions to this, but almost always this is true. And so you know, having those overarching conversations, I think you're spot on there. And, you know, I've never really realized it myself until you articulated it just now. The confidence interval of just those micro decisions of, you know, do we do this now or two weeks from now or three weeks from now? You know, sometimes those are the ones that can get the most heated or, you know, you can find yourself wasting a lot of energy, but that's not nearly as important as, you know, the themes or the approaches or strategies that are informed by The more important conversations.
1: Yeah, it's kind of one temptation. I think is to prioritize solutions. You know, you've got everyone thinks they understand the opportunity, and then they get into they get into these micro details of you know is this one just a little better than the other? You know, is 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 trying this experiment a little better than the other? and they almost take it for granted that the opportunity has been prioritized correctly <laughs> right and when you do that you can kind of lose the you can lose the thread you just get very into the weeds of like i've got this backlog with 50 things and you know this one's a little better than that and this one's a little better than that and no one helps you just get out of the weeds and say you know are we even in the right vicinity here I think the other thing that's super important is that in any growing business that's growing quickly with any big opportunity out there in the marketplace, almost by definition, things will not be certain. Things will not have 100% certainty because if they did, everyone would be doing it. The fact that you're in that space and that you're a startup and that you're growing means that there's an opportunity there that, that is not seen by everyone. And so what you find with a lot of prioritization is that you um you find this push to certainty. I'll tell a funny story. I was doing a consulting project and we we were using a, an approach to prioritization called cost of delay, where y- you you talk about the you know the number of millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars that the opportunity represents per month. And that lets you do apples to apples comparisons. If something's gonna take four months for a million dollars instead of one month for a million dollars, you do the thing. It's going to take you one month, but if you have a $10 million a month opportunity, it doesn't matter whether it's going to take you one, two, three, or four months. You just do it. Now we're doing this particular exercise and then and then the PM says, this sucks. We, you know, 10 of these things all, like when you add the confidence intervals, they all have about the same cost of delay. And I was like, okay, uh, flip a coin. What do you mean flip a coin? <laughs> You can't flip a coin on this. And I'm like, yeah, why not? Like all these have the same cost of delay. What what do you want to do? What's gonna make you happy? Oh, well that one's gonna make me happy. Well, okay, do that. Does everyone agree that all the cost of delays here are the same and the confidence intervals are really wide? Yeah. Okay, well, let's flip a coin. We can't flip a coin. That doesn't seem rigorous. Right. You know, like what what business are you in? Like if you could if it's okay to do that. Now the the um the funny part of that story is I asked the CEO, if, "If feasibility was not a problem, what would you be doing? Instantly, the CEO says, "Oh, we'd be tackling this problem." And I said, "Well, why aren't you tackling it?" Well, we tried once or twice, and uh, you know maybe we don't have the right team, and uh, you know, I'm concerned, and it was kind of, you know, no. And I said, "Well, you've just told me." that that is above and beyond the largest opportunity and you just tried once or twice and those things didn't work out and you've already given up and that's that's something that's really important about prioritization is that you know is de- is untangling all the baggage and the past efforts and things like that and then really decoupling the opportunity from what 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 you're trying and what you're experimenting with absolutely that ceo should have worked on that thing even if it meant failing five more times to do it. So I think that this relates back to, you know, we started off thinking about it. hopefully this conversation has given some of these weird insights into prioritization that that designers could could use. I'm trying to think how we could get really actionable for designers. And, and one is first, I would definitely recommend to designers to read things like S1s, which are these announcements for IPOs.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I've, I've read those just because I'm interested on the business side, but you know, you mentioned this is important for designers.
1: Absolutely. So so think about the Slack S1 or the Zoom S1. When you read through those documents, almost every paragraph you see something that UX or design can influence. They even call it out. They call out their onboarding, they call out their ease of use, they call out the performance for the product. You know, they call out these things specifically over and over and over again. And the reason why I say that is that I think that a lot of designers shy away from business. And then they get into these long debates about, you know, how can design impact the bottom line? How can it do these things? And just a cursory reading of these sort of investment documents is kind of an the nice thing about them is they are insights into companies that were really private and closed. And they need to sort of devolve this, will probably be the, the moment of greatest transparency where they they air their dirty laundry. And then they kind of go public and they do those things. So it's a really good opportunity to figure out where you fit in. But the reason this relates to uh, prioritization and an actionable thing for designers is that if you can just pick up a tiny amount of the how the business works, how it functions, how you know how things, how experience kind of ends up. Bubbling into lower churn or bubbles into easier onboarding or lower support overload or whatever, already gives you a kind of in into the prioritization discussion. Um, I don't know, what are some other tips that you can think of? So that's one, you know, just become a little bit better versed in in the business language.
0: I think another concrete one is what you you know alluded to earlier is understanding how no prioritization framework is perfect, and they're all bets. Right? you know I think in a previous episode you recommended that book uh, thinking in bets rather than calling it a feature backlog if you called it a bet backlog I think it would just make people understand really what you're trying to do right you're trying to prioritize different bets right and, and so you you just spoke about this and I think it's so true that you know I was listening to a podcast the other day of a CEO who was trying to build a billion dollar company right and he tweeted this, on Twitter, something like three years ago, and he said, you know, I'm going to make a billion dollar company. Um, And he failed to do so, and he was reflecting on it. Um, And he said that, you know, the first thing I realized is that when you say you're gonna build a billion dollar company, that's taking away the agency of all the people that are gonna give you that billion dollars, right? It doesn't exist that you brute force a billion dollars from somewhere, unless you're, you know, stealing it from a bank right? You become a billion-dollar company because you've done something that's valuable for a billion dollars, right? So a better way to phrase it would be like, I'm going to make a company that makes enough value worth a billion dollars, right? And that's a very different thing than saying, I'm going to build a billion-dollar company. And I think that goes right back to this discussion. And another concrete you know, thing I would think about it as a takeaway, just realizing how uncertain a priority framework is, even the best ones, how uncertain, you know, how uncertain end users will react to things, right? In another episode, we talked about how for any 10 given experiments, and these are very high level strategic bets, Netflix only gets four out of the 10 right, right? And we're reflecting upon how that's actually a really great number. I would love to have four out of 10. And so a reminder that, you know, what you're trying to do is just be Uh, intentional about it, not trying to get this perfect system that just frankly doesn't exist, I think is is a great reminder.
1: If it does, I mean, I was talking to someone recently from a large major publisher, uh, online publisher that does like recipes, right? And this is, they describe the business for a bit. Like, you know, we publish databases of recipes and people find them through Google and they come to our sites and then we sell advertisements. And it's, they, they were kind of going through their their business model, and their, they had a lot of demands on them to show the ROI of efforts and to do budgeting and to show like what EBITDA would be for different things, and you know it was just inc- incredibly rigorous. And what I realized about that conversation is to just add a little bit of nuance to what you said that there are situations like onboarding things or you know do you click on this button or you know do people who come in from SEO end up looking at one or two or three recipes, that type of stuff, right? And there are situations where you can make this very clear line from that particular thing to money. We've got eyeballs. So an amplitude customer that came to us as big publisher uh, had a different problem. They had printed money like this other recipe company had printed money for a long time, but they were being disrupted. They needed to figure out that the what was beyond these eyeballs, right? So they had to think about these nuanced questions about lifetime value of customers and and things. Now, prioritization for that uh, latter customer that was being disrupted was much more of an art. There was a lot. There was more guessing. Uh, there was more educated guessing. You know, narrowing the confidence. <laughs> But they had to make some leaps of faith, whereas the recipe book publisher that had printed money for the last however many years because of Google and search, that was more like a machine. Now, interestingly, when I would ask the recipe book publisher, do designers and engineers get directly involved in coming up with the bets? I was like, well, no, they don't in the other environment in the latter environment where they're being disrupted almost by definition they're going to need to get a lot more diversity and creativity and a lot more thought to go into those things so i think that from the, from the the takeaway for designers is that you need to have a radar for when you're in like this tiny little incremental improvement environment and at that point it's it's going to have a different type of prioritization effort, the language you need to talk about, than when you're in a disrupted environment. And I actually would claim that in the disrupted environment, the need for those other insights for design and engineering, and all those folks, is even is is much higher. Um, so you should be encouraged to become a part of it. Like there's a reason why these S ones of these companies that we all know and love, or love to hate or whatever that they were design infused is an example. Um, so I don't know. That's a, a long way to say, keep in mind the context of your company, pick your battles. If you're going to try to to advocate for things and really advocate for areas where you know design could create like a step change improvement.
0: I think that's really good advice. I wish I heard that advice when I was a younger designer. <laughs> uh, frankly, if I did hear it, it- might've not made a difference, but I wish I actually, so rather I wish I could have really embodied that advice as a younger designer and not just listen to it. Um, so no, I, I think we talked about a lot of things here. I'm hoping this resonates. Um, you know, kind of like John said, we'd love to hear feedback. You know, I alluded to this earlier, um, you know, if we're not making content that's useful for people that, you know, so many of our friends have asked us to do, um, you know, we will we'll try something new, or or we won't do this. And so, you know, please let us know if these conversations are helpful. Um, you know, leave a review on iTunes and tell us what we can improve, or reach out to Twitter, whatever ways that's comfortable. Um, I think that's a lot on prioritization, and and a lot more to talk about in the future. Uh, to wrap this up, I had I had an idea for the fun thing we could do. What do okay,
1: what is all right? Go for it.
0: Okay, it's a weird one.
1: All right, I'll stick okay. with it.
0: Okay. Imagine you're meeting a hero of yours, maybe a childhood hero, maybe somebody you admire today. Uh, it doesn't have to be related to your profession. It could be a sports athlete or whatever, right? Yep. So keep that. So have that person in your mind. Okay. Now imagine you have to sell them some sort of SaaS software. Who is that person, and what would the SaaS software be, and why? Like, like that's the circumstance in which you're meeting them. Mm. What software would it be?
1: And who and who the person is? Do I need to say who the person
0: is? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
1: so, let, let, I mean, I, I, I have many. You know, one of my heroes at the moment is that young woman Greta from Northern Europe, who's who's leading this environmental like advocacy
0: movement. The
1: um, one that.
0: At the UN, is yeah. that right?
1: Is there her last name? I, it's because I can't pronounce her last name. Is it Thurnberg or something like that? I think it's Greta. Thunberg. I think so. Yeah. I think yeah. so. And if I'm mispronouncing that, I so she's a hero for me. I, I think that person is hero quality. And and I get so mad that you see these sort of grown people picking away at uh you know, she has some characteristics and things like that, and they, they make fun of this this young woman. I think that that's terrible anyway but I was thinking about for someone like that because I, I believe she has Asperger's I believe that she has some kind of challenge in very like really loud social situations mm-hmm. so although this isn't really a SaaS product like I think it would be amazing for people and then for other friends of mine who who struggle with different like social anxiety or different things like that just just kind of like a, a basic um, energy management uh, kind of a, a way that encourages meditation and then encourages helping you deal in your surroundings wherever you are. I don't happen have any idea what the product would look like, but like it could have something where, you know, if the sound level of a space kind of was about to rise to a certain point, at which point maybe you start to have like a really, you know, you start to get really um, threatened, like maybe it could war- like warn you and then encourage you to maybe like take a walk or something. I don't know why I went there, but that's where I would go. <laughs> How about you?
0: I really like that. That's that's a good story. Um, for me, I don't know. That's that's interesting. I think, so I'm a big fan of Brett Victor. Um, he's a designer that I think has really inspired me. Um, and so he's a hero of, of mine for a lot of reasons. He has some fantastic presentations. If you're not aware of Brett Victor, uh, he was a designer at Apple uh, he left Apple and he's done a lot of talking since then. He He's worked on a bunch of different projects. Um, and he has kind of this this core or this brand of really trying to challenge how we design digital interfaces. And so I would love to sell him Amplitude, actually. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, not because he needs it, or maybe he does. Um, but, you know, a lot of my work is inspired from his, you know, he, one of my favorite presentations of his Stop Drawing Dead Fish Um, talks about how, you know, the way we draw fish today is very, you know, two-dimensional, right? You draw a fish, that's flat. But on a digital platform, you know, you drawing the fish can involve animation. It can involve, you know, physics that you give the fish because a fish is a living thing. So when we're drawing, let's say, fish on a computer, most of us are drawing it like a dead fish. And so, you know, I would highly recommend listening to his talk. Um, but when I was interviewing at Amplitude, you know, I gave the same analogy. Right, a lot of the data viz we have today are, you know, it can pretty much just be printed out on a piece of paper. There's not that much more you can do in terms of interactivity or animation or motion that helps add another layer of information that you couldn't get on a two D interface like paper. So mm-hmm. we've added other things to data. You know, now you can compute things faster, and you can get from one chart to another, and and whatnot, and you can embed some things. But it's still a two D technology, just maybe faster. Hmm. And I've always grappled with like, what is that for this paradigm, or that paradigm, or this paradigm for a digital world? And so, yeah, that would that would be a very nerve wracking sales demo. Um, but <laughs> that would amplitude and seeing kind of what he thinks of well, it. Maybe from-
1: maybe like a listener could hook it up and set Tariq oh, up,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and then you'll have to go and do that. That's really funny. I I'll try to do that, and I'll take that as my my um
0: little experiment yeah, in the next yeah, week. I, uh, the imposter syndrome in me would just that would that was <laughs> too, too, way too hard. <laughs> Anyways, well, I thought this was a good conversation, um, and yeah, I guess I guess until next time. Cool, yeah, until next time. Thanks, John. Bye bye.